now move to uh, Stephen's presentation. Stephen is a very active public historian and also uh, works at the Australian National Maritime Museum. And he's going to be talking about Cook Memorial. Not, not just Cook. <laughs> not just Cook. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Morgan Cook. But um, I, just before I start, I just wanted to say I wish Tamsin was here to, to talk about that, that presentation. I just find it raises many questions about the urge to commemorate and whether it's political or there is a, a natural urge to commemorate, to remember that isn't polit necessarily political. And I think there's some really nice points in that, um, you know, about what happens to monuments after that period of commemoration. So perhaps next time. But um, as Richard said, I'm a curator at the National Australian National Maritime Museum. Um, I'm also a public historian and um, an historian. Um, I've been working on frontier wars history of late in the Sydney wars. Um, but what got me interested in monuments, I guess, in the beginning was my PhD thesis was a history of historical reenactments. Now, um, they're, they're kind of associated with monuments. They're often they're commemorative, um, often occur in the same sites. But one of the things that really fascinated me and I've um, tried to investigate in some way is when I was, I, I had to do a lot of study of historical reenactors and, and dress up and, and, and be with them and, um, you know, and think about their reasons for reenactment. And um, at one reenactment event, um, a person said to me um, that she thought of herself as a mobile monument and commemorating her ancestors by dressing up as if the, she was her ancestor from the past. So, but it got me thinking because I was very much interested in, in reenactment, commemoration and performance as almost um, a different sort of, of remembrance. So that's where, where I came into this, this sort of interest in monuments. Um, but I, I just wanted to talk in general about this, this idea that, that, as Richard said, has, has been raised about what happens when we start to remove monuments. So if we go to the, yeah, the first slide, is, um, sorry, the one, that was the first slide. <laughs> yep. So over the last two years, um, you know, as Richard said, spurred by the South African and British Roads Must Fall campaigns and the protests and the counter-protests over the removal of Confederate and slavery-related slavery statues in the United States, a distinctly Australian version of these so-called statue wars emerged. While statue wars were in many ways a reflection of the increasingly global nature of political contention, they all have significant local inflections. And here, these are often driven by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and their allies, specifically arguing for a, quote, decolonisation of commemoration. While Aboriginal activists have pointed to monuments as critical sites of, of um, <coughs> public history, Historians who over the last two decades really came to the fore in a period of recognition of Australia's violent settler past have largely failed to engage with an everyday Australian landscape strewn with monuments to Captain Cook and other colonial figures, such as Governor Macquarie, who ordered the um, 1816 punitive campaign that resulted in the Appen Massacre, uh, or Robert Towns, famous for his involvement in the blackbirding trade, which was akin to slavery in the Pacific. 
Indeed, I've been surprised at many historians who fundamentally support the renewed focus on massacres and frontier wars of late draw the line, it seems, at the removal of monuments that for many Australians are stark, searing, everyday reminders of this very past. And this monument we see here, for example, stands in the middle of a public park in Bathurst. The surveyor, explorer and founding father, George Evans, stands tall while kneeling at his feet is his faithful unnamed Aboriginal guide. A similar statue in Ottawa in Canada was cut into two monuments, separated some small distance apart and given new interpretive signage. If we go to the next slide. So moving on to, yep, Captain Cook. Even though Cook briefly visited Australian shores in 1770 at two locations, he, he did try to land at Wollongong, um, but the surf was too rough. Um, there are 36 monuments to Captain Cook across the east coast of Australia. And even the Wollongong landing attempt has a plaque about how we almost landed there. <laughs> Monuments to the men of colonisation in Australia were erected during late 19th century and early 20th century bursts of local or national civic celebrations of progress, sometimes very loosely tied in with commemorations of the past. But during the 20th century, these monuments faded into the background. From 1915, the commemorative landscape of statuary was swamped by the construction of bronze figures of Anzac soldiers, one in the centre of almost every town in the country, and the statues that stood in for the graves of tens of thousands of World War I dead that were never to return to cemeteries in Australia. Monuments to the men of colonisation then languished, often become the butt of jokes, gradually becoming irrelevant scenery in public parks. They were bypassed by new markers of national history, the Anzacs. So why don't we begin to perhaps remove one or two of the 36 monuments to Cook? Early last year, the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull weighed into the statue wars when he announced the $50 million project for Cook's Landing um, with the suggestion that calls to replace or modify statues of English colonists, including Captain Cook, were tantamount to a Stalinist rewrite of history. Perhaps surprisingly, many historians seem to have agreed, arguing that monuments, even offensive ones, are still history, and that to remove them is a censorship of the past. Some have proposed counter-memorials as a way to keep monuments that glorify a racist past, reinterpreting the monument and contextualising it in the hope that it may become in itself a document of this racism. They are concerned that tearing down monuments is like burning books. In this understanding of what constitutes a counter-memorial, the addition of a plaque to a monument that tells a story, that tells both sides of the story, seems a way to settle the statue wars. I was surprised in a minor um, Twitter skirmish I had with an historian that um, even the suggestion that moving a monument into a museum where it could still be kept it could still be a document to a darker past, still remain as heritage um, rather than a raw wound, was still not acceptable. I really couldn't understand the apparent sacred, sacredness of these monuments, particularly compared to other non-statue heritage items that get steamrolled every day for motorways, light rail extensions or new suburbs. 
When, Captain, when statues of Captain Cook were graffitied and paint-bombed in 2017, the Heritage Council was forced to look at the level of protections in place for monuments that relate to Australia's colonial history. Perhaps not surprisingly, it found that the legislation was indeed inadequate for the protection of these monuments, for, uh, was adequate for the protection of those monuments. But it also found, at the same time, it investigated Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural and historic sites. The, that legislation around that was, by comparison, quite inadequate, the protection. So um, the image here of Cook in a bikini um, is from Gisborne. No, that's the same slide, sorry. It's from Gisborne in New Zealand, where in 1769, Cook's crew shot nine and probably, probably killed six Maori. Understandably, perhaps, poor old Captain Cook was always getting makeovers over the years. So the Gisborne local council decided to remove him and to pop him into a local museum. There was little fuss about this in New Zealand and probably more fuss here in Australia. There's also discussion underway to rename the locations there, Cook, um, renamed Cook Plaza and Poverty Bay with Maori names. So now if we go to the next slide... When the Statue Wars emerged in Australia in 2017, there were growing calls to erect, erect monuments and memorials to massacres and frontier warfare to balance the range of histories represented and the numbers of monuments. But even before this, a subtler memorialisation of the frontier wars has been occurring across Australia, and I think it's bypassed the usual form of monuments and statues altogether. In 2016... The Representation Remembrance and Memorial Project was established to consider how the magnitude of Indigenous loss and survival might be represented in a national memorial. The project, quote, aimed to generate thought and discussion on what forms future memorialisation can take place. It, it kind of suggested that there wasn't memorialisation. Very soon, some Aboriginal artists and activists stridently opposed the idea there were no or few existing monuments or memorials to the frontier wars. They claimed Aboriginal artists had been making such monuments for many years. They claimed um, the burial poles or log coffins from Arnhem Land, Yolnu artists in the National Gallery in Canberra, for example, were installed in 1988, specifically timed to coincide with the, the bicentenary of British invasion. Of less notice at the time was the accompanying statement that this commemorates all the Indigenous people who, since 1788, have lost their lives defending their land. Even before this, the tent embassy that was first erected in front of the Australian Parliament in 1972 had been called a memorial. Here, Aboriginal sovereignty is inextricably linked to the recognition of the frontier wars, to massacres and to the stolen generations. Judy Watson's interactive multimedia about massacre sites across Australia is another. So too, Tony Albert's recent public sculptural work of giant bullet shells that commemorates Aboriginal service in World War I, with the phrase on the plaque, those who, um, those who have served their country, I don't know if you can see that, suggests to me another parallel meaning. In early 2018, historian of violence and gender Lyndall Ryan launched a digital mapping project of massacre sites across Australia. It certainly gained public attention, described as the first efforts to compile such a national picture in this way. 
and powerful and shocking in the extent of hundreds of dots across the Australian landscape, each representing a known massacre event. And Mark, as Mark McKenna has said, he called the Univers University of Newcastle Digital Mapping Project a cartographic memorial. Go to the next one. Contemporary Aboriginal artists such as Jason Wing, Adam Hill, Fiona Foley and others all seem to resist the urge to commemorate these pasts in the form of monuments or at least in their usual statuary or inscriptive forms. Along with artworks as memorials, other artists and, artists, um, and activists have, suggest, have argued that memorials have in fact long existed as a form of archive in the landscape. Rather than creating artwork memorials of, for example, log coffins, for non-Indigenous audiences, they argue that understanding art and landscape as memorials might stretch the modes of history making. We go to the next one. So last weekend I went to the launch of a mural on the Cooks River in Sydney, Australia's most polluted waterway, um, about Pemaway, the Sydney resistance leader. The mural was... Um, by the artist Jason Wing. It's on a water tank next to a public toilet block at a soccer field. But this powerful artwork in a suburban setting got me thinking that Wing has been doing similar community-based works all across Sydney. One by one, these small, almost insignificant dots, like dots on the massacre map, add up to a big picture. And they add up not through the means of a, a grand memorial, but through a di very different form altogether. It seems, as historian Mark McKenna has argued, the statue wars, as well as debates around the commemoration of Australia Day and the memorialisation of the frontier wars, which all kind of get tied in, are surface ripples of deeper issues, issues that are ultimately connected to acknowledging the past or truth-telling. Despite official reluctance to engage with it and efforts to ignite popular fears over truth-telling, I agree with McKenna that we're on the brink of momentous change, change that has been brought to the fore by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and to a small degree by historians and others, and a change that sees Australia moving to a refounding of the notion that of the nation on a more honest, just and, quote, legitimate grounds. In this, the statue wars a part of a larger culture war over the meaning of Aboriginal dispossession. If we go to the next one. Uh, some of you may recognise this um, image. It's from Newcastle, where, um, I, as far as I understand, this, this was a, an old advertising sign that was re, uh, revealed and, and touched up and was uh, quickly graffitied. Um, with, can you read that? Colonialism is cooked. And if we could go to the next one. So that's um, an image of, in some ways, two very different um, forms of commemoration. Jason Wing's bust of Captain Cook and um, the Endeavour, the replica of the Endeavour. So I just wanted to leave that for people to think about. But um, I, just, I just, you know, I think it's fascinating that Wing is, is using this classic bust and, re and just by putting a, a, a balaclava on the bust, it just radically changes the way that you think about this monument. So, thank you. <laughs>